Welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn and my co-host this week, as usual, are Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hello, everyone. This week, we are going to be running through the state of the world geopolitics style, I suppose you might call it, and the big things that have been happening over... Well, that have happened over the past uh, week, some of them more obvious than others, but uh, specifically, I suppose, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, North Korea and uh, what's going on there and the prospects for that, and then we're also going to uh, delve into the visit of French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela, Angela Merkel. Uh, both of whom visited Trump uh, in very different styles, it has to be said. Macron was full on, you know, get your finest uh, silverware and uh, Chinese crockery out. And Merkel was a kind of a uh, bit of a flash in the pan, I suppose you might call it. A few hours. I was disappointed. I thought she'd at least get a twirl, a wink, and be called Angie or something. You yeah. Know? None of that. No, I think she could put the put the abortion that on. Uh, Angela is not up for that kind of uh, that kind of malarkey. Um, whereas Macron just loves it. So anyway, yeah. So we'll be getting to that later on. Um, so yeah, to start off, uh, new Korea. It's all done. Peace is broken out all around the world. Uh, there's no more threat of nu- nu- nukes or nuclear war uh, in the on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Basically, you know, remember, does anybody remember, I suppose when you yeah. kind of crap your pants uh, so often, or people, not that we do necessarily, but when people are encouraged to crap their pants uh, so often these days, it's probably hard to keep track of the things that you've crapped your pants about, you know, uh, in, in the past few months, um, in the past year or two, you know, particularly in the past year, I suppose, yeah. since Trump came this in. Time, this very time last year, it was nuclear yeah, Armageddon was, was, was imminent. Yeah. Trump was Trump was calling Kim Jong Un uh, that fat kid and stuff. Uh, rocket man. Rocket man. Somebody's calling him a fat kid. And uh, then McCain. McCain called him that fat kid. And then and that's obviously that's I mean that's that's what you when you call someone names like that. Uh, then the next thing is you push the red button, right? Everybody knows that, right? Um, so and they were insults traded back towards Trump. I can't remember what they called Trump, but I'm sure it was pretty sure it was. Uh, I think they're a dotard. Statement. Huh? A dotard. A dotard. There you go. Dotard. Dotard Trump. Um, but um, that's all gone away now. As quick as it looked like it was going to happen, like we're all going to be wiped out in a nu- nuclear holocaust, suddenly it's peace. Oh, how did that happen? That's amazing. Um, makes you wonder about the reality behind those uh, that hysterization of the uh, you know, we're all going to die, uh, World War Three, any minute now. But yes, yeah, so New Korea. I mean, um, North and South. Possibly going to certainly they have uh, they've signed agreements I think understandings of agreements agreements of understanding uh, to be nice to each other and to increase things like trade and open their borders a little bit more and not be so violent and for North Koreans to stop building those deadly nukes that could wipe everybody out uh, particularly America uh, particularly California because that's where they're going to be fired. And the ones that he test-fired, well, they didn't get very far. Bit out into the sea. But yeah. anyway, it was nuclear Armageddon, any moment. Uh, that was why Hawaii, if you remember Hawaii, uh, somebody pushed the, the right. alert. 
the alert panic and why the panic uh, uh, incoming <laughs> incoming nukes. Uh, that was maybe as a result of that, I suppose. Um, so that's the kind of level of nonsense that goes on, you know. Um, but anyway, back in the real world, of course, it's a good idea that North Korea and South Korea would cozy up a little bit more than they have been. Uh, they've been artificially, they were artificially divided as a result of the Korean War, led by, well, perpetrated effectively by America uh, back in 19, early 50s. Uh, 45, actually, right at the end of the war. It was, the country was partitioned in 1945, yeah. Well, the, the Korean War was in The Korean War, sorry. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm talking about. Uh, when they blew the crap out of it, basically. Um, killed. Obliterated. About a third of the population, I think. Um, and then drew that. And then. And that, I suppose that cemented the, the, the division, let's say. And certainly made North Korea. Certainly, from the North Koreans' point of view, certainly soured relationships uh, with uh, the West. Let's say um, after the West, i.e., America killed one third of their population. Uh, so yeah, that it became uh, the hermit state. Right. It's been sixty-five years. Um, they never actually ended the war. Officially, it's an armistice. So right. That's why it's officially you know, over. Nothing substantive really is going to come out of a first meeting. But they did. Seriously, they seem to be serious about formally ending the war. Right. Uh, peace treaty. Um, and they made all kinds of cozy statements. And it looked very personal. It, it did look heartwarming and yeah, um, genuine Right. and all that. Um, it's been a few months um, since January. Something happened in January. And next thing, the North Koreans were sending a delegation to mm-hmm. the, Winter, the Winter Olympic Games. Right. And that was a real icebreaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, there's a whole sequence of things that happened last year. Um, oh, you, you basically summed it up as, you know, nuclear Armageddon, hysterization. Right. But what was going on there? Um, I wonder if, if, in real real political terms, Korea, this has only been able to happen now because North Korea got nukes. They got the big stick, and right. now we can talk peace. Well, that's what—that's often what happen, it happens, or that's—it hasn't happened that often. But in theory, that's that's the way uh, any country um, who feels like they might be threatened by the the Western order, what they would do is, if they were big enough and had the had the potential, they would attempt to arm themselves up to and including obviously the ultimate arm with is, is nuclear weapons, so that you can defend yourself. So that basically, you can have a of a defense against the potential uh, regime change, let's say, if you don't do the right thing as far as the West is concerned. So certainly there's nothing that that may have been the case, but um, I'm not. I, I think North Korea would have there would have been a longer process before, certainly before it was able to um, acquire the capability to really threaten anybody with their. I mean, their main threat really in that situation was against South Korea mm-hmm. because it right there, basically, and certainly they could have done, that's what they would have done any any and all of their damage, and, and potentially Japan. Basically, we're targeting uh, Western interests, effectively, uh, in South Korea. I mean, there's a lot of U.S. military personnel, U.S. military bases in South Korea, and in Japan. And Japan's a close Western ally, so that those are their targets. So the, the idea that they would ever pose a threat, would have posed a threat in any in, in the short term or even medium term, is, is silly to, to America that, that, that they would have opposed a threat to them is, is nonsense. Um, Lindsey McCain and the the right in the states in general, 
um, are seriously suggesting Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize right. for this. To what extent is it, I mean, is there a relationship there? Is Trump's tough talk a contributing factor, at least, to bring this about? Possibly. Certainly, he thinks so, because he's basically taken, just today, I think, he, in talking about North Korea, he more or less took all the, all the credit. I did it all, basically. It's uh, all me. Of course, he's going to say that, but <laughs> um, his tough talk may have been useful. I mean, t- it seemed mm-hmm. to work. You know, the whole kind of, um, uh, he, he's brought back the idea of, um, of, of well, he ha- it's not, he's changed the idea of, of talk quiet, talk quietly and carry a big stick. He just talks loudly and doesn't really use the big stick or thinks that loud talk and, and harsh talk is, is enough of, enough to get you there. You don't need to actually use your big stick, which makes a lot of sense, you know what I mean? Uh, certainly in the sense of, uh, or to the extent that a lot of countries around the world are aware of US military capabilities, you don't really need to go and bomb people. You shouldn't have to, in theory. You should you should just be able to threaten, you know, and then get, get some movement on something, you know? So, uh, but I think he... I think Trump's role in in the North Korean settlement wasn't insignificant, but it wasn't as significant as he's saying it is. And certainly the Chinese had a big, big part to play because they have a long-standing relationship with North Korea and were able to provide assurances uh, for North Korea to keep North Korea kind of happy, basically, because that's, that's their neighbor, right? It's right next door. Like, you know, I mean, if you're going to look for uh, people to be on your side, you're going to really look for your, your big neighbors and people in, in the region close to you that can that are able to have direct impacts on you and, and can uh, provide, let's say, protection and, and that you do most trade with and all that kind of stuff. You're not really going to, you know, you're not going to be too concerned about America. The only, the only thing that people are really concerned about of America is that they're going to bomb them. Not that, you know, because America isn't anywhere near North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think Trump's role in that respect was maybe making it clear that he actually w- wanted uh, a peaceful settlement, that he wasn't... Uh, you know, I think it's here, here's the thing. It's always it's been for a long time over since this North Korea thing has been go, going on as North Korea the act as part of the axis of evil. That goes back to 2003. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about 15 years <laughs> of this kind of enemy, uh, North Korea as an enemy, and certainly it was useful over those years for the Bush and the Obama administrations to use the the alleged threat from North Korea as a rogue state could get nukes, all that kind of stuff to. Ex- project their power, let's say their military power, their naval power into the Pacific theater, as they call it, as a as a as a, as a kind of block and warning really really to China, uh, to to have boots on the ground and ships on the sea around China, uh, and you could always say, well, it's for North Korea, right? That's why we're here. Well, mm-hmm. no, we're not really. Actually, we're here. We're, we're here. here because this is our lake, right? And we want to he- and we want to hem in China. Uh, so the you haven't had movement on this because previous uh, American administrations were happy enough to keep that, keep North Korea as the bogeyman. They didn't want to uh, push any peace overtures or actually establish, help to create peace between the two countries and downgrade North Korea from arch nemesis to just another country that should be reunited with the South um, because it was useful as a, as a bogeyman, as an enemy, as a that crazy those crazy North Koreans are going to blow everybody up. We got to be over there to protect the world, protect the free world and stuff. So, uh, I'm I'm allowing for the idea that Trump uh, was a bit more decent and actually did was you know gave the North Koreans some assurances or went far enough to 
to help with the process of peace that it could actually manifest because if the US doesn't want peace with a country well, it can just say it I don't want peace help. it'll keep imposing sanctions mm-hmm. it'll keep it'll keep pissing them off it'll keep uh, antagonizing etc and I think Trump his contribution was to simply so it wasn't as much that, that what he did but what he didn't do in a certain sense yeah. he basically just pulled back from the established policy but over the past 15 years of American policy towards North Korea of antagonizing them and keeping them as an enemy but and sure that was enough it didn't to seem let, like that in the media though <laughs> Well, no, but yeah, seems like it's opposite. I, I understand. Uh, you're probably right in the back, the key arena, the backroom deals and right, talking exactly. on the phone and right. who's talking with who. That's pro- you know, uh, right. I can imagine that scenario playing out. And yet, what we were treated to in the media was very right. opposite. You right. Know? But that might have been the last well, kind of row between. Could have been part of the ruse. Yeah. I think that the the way I've been seeing it, the role that Trump played was in a kind of art of the deal way of taking the ex taking the escalation to the point that actual negotiations uh, are then necessary because he could like, I think that if anything, his role was to precipitate um, this whole process that might've taken longer if he had not been so bombastic in his statements. Um, Because what you basically had, well, the U S whoever was in power had the option of just basically keeping the same level of, you know, provocation and response and like what's been going on for years. <clears throat> and and in that case, everything just kind of stays the same and nothing kind of progresses to um, nothing. Any go- nothing goes anywhere. Everything kind of stays at the same level. But what Trump essentially did was take it like to an extreme level. And the media played a big role in that by hyping it up so much. That people did, you know, like you said, Joe, pe- people did crap their pants thinking there was going to be nuclear war. When things get to that kind of level, that's when negotiations become more likely. And so I, I don't think he, like Trump, had you know a huge role to play, like you're saying. But he, I think that the, he had, he did play that kind of catalyst role in getting things moving. Things that would have probably happened regardless, but maybe over a longer stretch of time, um, because of course you know Moon, the new South Korean president, part of his platform was you know being reasonable so um right 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 yeah that, that's, that's the, the way i see it it just kind of like brought things to a head the trump effect i think it's uh, there are two other agents here i mean the, the three newcomers arrived in the last well one of them arrived in 2011 but we didn't really see or hear about him until obviously this blew up last year that's kim jong-un himself mm-hmm. the other one is moon jae-in the new president of south korea since last year after their previous government fell because of a major corruption scandal. Right. Um, and then, of course, Trump. So the the, the agents, the actors, mm-hmm. also brought something new to this as well. And I want to say something about Kim Jong-un. Obviously, he's very young. I mean, people are raving about how precocious Macron is. Yeah, but this <laughs> his exact age isn't known, but he's probably about 35. Apparently, we listened to him, an excerpt of his statement to the press after the summit. Before we came on air, but well, we couldn't tell. It's in Korean, of course, with uh, subtitles. But apparently, Koreans listening to it are like, he's speaking Korean, but there's something funny about his voice. And they realize that he's got a, a, a kind of a heavyish Swiss German tinge on his accent because he went to school <laughs> probably in Switzerland right. as a kid and as a teenager in France, I think. Right. So that's something new in the equation. This is a kid who's born after. He's the first leader of North Korea born after North Korea became such. Mm-hmm. He's internationally probably speaks a foreign language or two. Mm. 
he's probably just the right element you need for the country to make the step and open, open up, up yeah. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he's also uh, worn Western clothing during certain uh, speeches and uh, announcements. And uh, some pundits said that he was signaling to the West that he was uh, willing to, to talk. And this was right in the midst of uh, all of the, you know, Rocket Man and, and Fat Boy comments uh, of, of last year. So uh, I think there, you know, there's something to be said about the fact that he isn't this, uh, this you know, war crazy um, leader uh, that the uh, West made him out to be for a while. And uh, just getting back to Trump for a moment, uh, I agree with what Harrison said. I, I think that um, uh, Trump did act as, as something of a catalyst in this whole situation. Uh, it's interesting that he uh, he also came out with a tweet uh, stating that he was thanking uh, President Xi of China for uh, taking part in the process. So there there does there does seem to be a underlying um, uh, sanity on the part of Trump, uh, realizing that uh, obviously, you know, taking this, escalating it further with North Korea is not a good idea, uh, despite what uh, what the crazies in Washington probably had hoped uh, for for the outcome. And um, it's just real interesting. You know, it it, it would be uh, nice to see this process taken to its logical end. Uh, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, well, what what can the uh, what what is that other part of Washington going to do at this point to try and sabotage any uh, any real um, detente and 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 peace between North and South Korea at this point? So well, that that's a question that's been in the back of my mind. In 2010, someone did try to sabotage, and they did, in fact, effectively. It's what it's why it's been eight years, 11 years since the last summit between the, the two countries. Um, a missile or torpedo of unknown origin sunk a South Korean vessel. I know I, can't, I wrote something on it at the time. I don't quite remember, but there was something mysterious about it. Obviously, North Korean submarine was blamed, but they provided some evidence to show that, no, this wasn't us. So, yeah, literally right there, you, you can have an actual false flag in the classic sense of the word, a naval attack pinned on the flag of another country. Um, yes, uh, obviously false flags will be a, a constant threat in any hot conflict or potentially yeah. reheating conflict around the world. But um, I think more likely is that there'll be, we'll probably see this drag on because Korea as a whole, the situation there will remain a a point of leverage between East and West. So mm -hmm. it's not going to be, it's, it's Korea will be solved, but in the context of other things, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it's down the list really in terms of uh, priorities for the, for Washington and the kind of deep state or whatever you want to call them. Um, when you consider uh, the stuff going on in the Middle East and the perennial threat uh, from Russia that everybody knows about. And is growing every day. If you listen to the Western press, they're up to everything, basically. They're, you know, they're. I mean, anything goes wrong. Uh, oh yeah, it's, they're it's all up to the internet. Uh, Frank on the chat room said that uh, Joseph Farrell, whoever he is, and name rings a bell, but Joseph Farrell suggested that the U.S. used a rod from God 
to destroy the North Korean nuclear testing site and blew up a mountain. Ah, right. <laughs> he said the Chinese confirmed an earthquake after the last test. I read the story about the possible earthquake uh, and a mountain. Um, a portion of it collapsed. Collapsing or something like that. But to describe that to... Uh, that had been known for many years, though, that so, it was on the verge of... Yeah, to describe that to the US, it just sounds like uh, somebody, probably John McCain, made that story up, uh, trying to make America look as powerful as it isn't. Um or as, it, as, it, as you'd like it to be. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But it's good news. I don't think it's gonna. there's anything going to go. I think North Korea is a kind of done deal at this point. And like you said, it'll take a, a while uh, for things to be ironed out. And there are probably a few hiccups along the way. But uh, I think it's, it's too small and really insignificant at this point. And, you know, if both leaders, the, the, real, the real test in that now would be the North and South Korean leaders, uh, Kim, Jong, Kim Jong-un and uh, Moon should be on the same page, basically, about mm-hmm. any potential attempt to do that and to, to, you know... And to what extent can South Korea do that with... I mean, this intelligence agency is joined of the hip with yeah, certain exactly. Western yeah. agencies, so we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's North Korea. Moving on to um, the visit of the two... Le Grand Visite. Le Grand Visite from... Napoleon, Napoleon, I mean, mean, Jupiter, I mean, what's his name? Um, Emmanuel Macron, French president, and Angela Merkel. Uh, Not together, of course, one after the other. Macron first, then Merkel, hot on his heels. Um, A bit of a love-in with Macron and Trump. Uh, Kind of embarrassing, uh, the way they got it on. Yeah. And neither of them really knew what to do with each other, kind of thing. They didn't know whether to hug or kiss or just get a room or something. Um, uh, that that should somebody should have advised him yeah. not not to do that just to keep it formal because you just look stupid. You make yourself look like a bit of an idiot, you know. And he was grimacing at the at the shenanigans going on where you know, <laughs> kind of shake hands and not sure, shake hug, oh uh, hug huggy shake, or uh, thump pat on the back, or uh, hold your, I don't know, oh, uh, and then you look stupid, you know. And everybody's grimacing and squirming with you. And why would why do you do that? Why, what's your problem? Just shake the goddamn. I mean, you know what Trump's like, you know, so just kind of like shake his hand and if he wants to pull you in for something, just go, no thanks, whatever, you know. I mean, do the, most other leaders had that down when, uh, shortly after Trump was in power, they were basically just, you know, you, you keep a stiff arm basically when you're shaking his hand, you know, so he doesn't pull you in, that kind of stuff, and you just let go, you know, and say, thanks, that's done, and you move away. Macron was all up for it, like, he was like, let's let's hug, you know, let's embrace, kiss me. My beautiful friend, uh, my, my, my beautiful American. Uh, he has a thing for the older people. You know? Overlord. He does, obviously. He has a thing for older people. So uh, maybe that's well, part of it. This was almost a repeat of the the Macron Trudeau, you know, meeting. Because that was in the news. Was it just the week before where Trudeau and Macron got together? And it was the same kind of touchy-feely, huggy, like, bromance thing, as the media was calling it. Which made me wonder if there's, like, a you know, a tripartite agreement to appear all, you know, buddy, buddy and, yeah. um, you know, touchy feely because it was, it's just, it, I don't know. It's just weird. It's, it kind of comes out of, came out of nowhere. It's partly the soy effect. It's too much soy in Western diets. Yeah. Maybe Macron felt like he, he had bonded with Trump over the, uh, the attack on Syria a few weeks ago. And, mm. and, and now that, you know, now that they've they've engaged in this violence together, uh, at least in part, uh, they, they they've they've grown closer. Yeah, 
Well, well <laughs> Macron was at this from the get-go when he had Trump in Paris mm. last year. It was first noted For there. Bastille, yeah. A lot of touchy-touchy pats yeah. on the back. When it was thought there would be, you know, a really uncomfortable standoff between them, given that one is Mr. Rothschild, a globalist, and the right. other one is not <clears throat> Merca first. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't happen at all. They no. both uh, well, hit yeah. it off. For the cameras, you know, you got to... And Trump likes, likes Trump re- reportedly likes forming personal relationships with people. It's important to him to uh, that he likes someone, mm. and maybe Macron got wind of that, so he decided to, you know, load it up, you know, uh, lay it on in spades, you know, uh, show him that I really like you, Donald. <laughs> You're really, I really, really like you. Give me another kiss, and then that would, yeah, it would give him some leverage, I suppose, and. In, in doing what he wanted to do, and, and that's what we want to talk about, really, is what Macron's yeah. aim was in going to the U.S. And probably the best uh, way to 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 deal with that or to, to look into that is to look at what Macron said, because he had uh, he gave a speech to this was part of the full the full package tour of America. He gave a speech to a joint session of Congress with the senators there and everybody who was anybody in Washington. Um, even what do you call her, uh, Nancy Pelosi? She was there, and uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, this is his speech. Part of, we're just going to look at a little bit, play a little bit of his speech to Congress, um, and this is this is after the fact. This was more or less the last thing he did, um, but before that, he had all of his private chats with with Trump. But you can tell more or less what he talked about with Trump privately from what he said to Congress, you know, in, in broad terms. But we'll we'll kind of dissect the 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 political speak here for uh, and 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 we'll look, and we'll try and figure out what he's what he's trying to say. So we'll stop and start this as we go, but have a listen. The terrorist threat is even more dangerous when it is combined with the nuclear proliferation threat. We must therefore be stricter than ever with countries seeking to acquire the nuclear bomb. That is why France supports fully the United States in its efforts to bring Pyongyang through sanctions and negotiations towards denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Yay, whatever. Um, Let me just pause it there. this is just before, obviously, this is a few days before the announcement of the North Korean meetup. So, you know, that's kind of old news in a certain sense. Right. Um, but I thought it was interesting what you just said, though, that the terrorist threat is much worse or is more important to deal with the terrorist threat, threat in the context of nu- nuclear proliferation. Uh, and then he segues straight into North Korea. Mm-hmm. Ergo, North Korea is a terrorist state. With 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 potential for liable to give dirty nukes to terrorists or just use them themselves, which so. is the plot from Team America from 2002, right. that goofy satire. Movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then listen to who he segues into next uh, in that same context. As for Iran, Ooh. our objective is clear. Iran shall never possess any nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hang on a minute. Uh, Emphasize that for a second. <laughs> not now, not in five years, 
Not in 10 years, never. A rousing uh, standing ovation for that one. Never, jamais, uh, in French. So, a bit arrogant, to say the least. Well, first of all, Iran's effectively a terrorist state. That was in the context of what he was talking about. The terrorists who have, he said, terrorist threat is very important, especially in the context of nuclear proliferation. North Korea and now Iran. Iran will never... Here's some jumped-up little 40-year-old French guy, a banker, standing up in front of Congress, talking from a country with 60 million people, the president before his time of 60 million people, talking about a country in the Middle East, in Asia, effectively, with 80 million people, with a history goes back thousands of years before France even existed. And he's telling them that they will, what they will and will not get, never. Right. And he's... he's Is that uh, exceptional, Stan, right there? Is that like uh, mandate, totally. mandate of heaven? Based, or not mandate of heaven, but... Uh, it's George Bush's access of evil, access of evil from 2001. Right. That was the exact same line, which was handed to him, just they as will. it's now being handed to it's the party line. They will never get it. Never. So he gets a... Which, by the way, one other point, he just contravened the very Iran deal he's in Washington to try and uphold because mm. the deal says right. Iran will have no use for 10 years. Well, 10 years as a first, yeah. yeah there's, there's nothing in the Iran never. deal. Never. Hang on a second. That wasn't the agreement. Right, there's nothing in the Iran deal that says never, but he's appealing, he's appealing to Trump there, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but let's listen to what he says next. Blah, 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 pause, very good, yes, sit down. But this policy should never lead us to war in the Middle East. (laughs) Did anybody anybody (laughs) notice the discrepancy there? This is call of Congress, all of the Senate. And some of them, no, no, obviously, the, the few claps were from the Democrats, from the humanitarian Democrats, right? The so-called anti-war party. A few of them left in their Democrats. Oh, we did applause. <laughs> it should never lead to war in the Middle East. Mm, <laughs> not sure I'm on board. We like, you see, we kind of like war in the Middle East. You know what I mean? We have a kind of a history there, and it's fun, and it gets stuff done, and we like it, and we're America. So for you to stand up and say no more, I mean, really, no war in the Middle East? Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, let's k- carry on here. We must ensure stability and respect <coughs> sovereignty of the nations, including that one of Iran, which represents a great civilization. Let us not replicate past mistakes in the region. Let us not be naive on one side. Let us not create new wars ourselves on the other side. Mm. Muted applause again. Let's respect Iranian sovereignty. Let's not create new wars. And You're going off script here, Macron. I'm not sure I could folly on that one. Pathetic, like, really. I mean, it's just... Just, I mean, right there is, that's America. That's the, the American establishment, uh, the elite, Washington elite there, what they're, what they're into. Like, I mean, they just don't like anybody standing up and saying we shouldn't have any more, more war in the Middle East. And there's an agenda to follow. Bolton says there'll be a new regime in Tehran in 2019. So. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, let's get into the media. 
There is an existing framework called the JCPOA to control the nuclear activity of Iran. We signed it at the initiative of the United States. We signed it both the United States and France. That is why we cannot say we should get rid of it like that. All right. Mm -hmm. yeah. A little applause. A little bit of applause there. Yeah, so he goes on basically about that, you know, his point, Macron's point here is when he went to Washington was, well, he had a few points he wanted to make. One was um, the Iran deal and trying to encourage or in some way coerce Trump not to back out of the Iran deal, which he is planning to do possibly on May 12th. Yeah. When it comes up again for whether or not to re to impose sanctions mm -hmm. on Iran or to, to extend the, the 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 Iran deal, basically a U.S. agreement with the Iran deal. Uh, the reason France does not want Trump America to back out of the Iran deal is because when the Iran deal was signed in mid 2015, pretty much bunch of French companies, in particular with other European companies, German companies, but particularly French companies, were at the, in the starting blocks. And as soon as that deal was signed, or probably even before it, they were straight into Iran. And by far, France has made the most investment and, and has most investments in Iran since sanctions were, um, were lifted and officially Iran was back into the international community after really a decade or more, or decades you could almost say, of, of sanctions on and off. Um, I have a couple of small examples, right. but they're massive in the scale that, that they're agreed upon. Iran awarded Airbus over Boeing to huge, huge deals for um, basically an entire new civilian fleet of aircraft. And on the energy side, Total Energy of France won the deal right. as part of a major consortium to develop Iran's gas field, yeah. the poorest gas field, right. the largest on earth. Right. So. I think it's five billion uh, total has. Uh, a five billion deal to to develop that that gas field, and of course, Iran has a lot of gas, a lot of oil. Russian companies also got in there, <clears throat> and Chinese companies are also heavily invested in Iran, uh, particularly since the sanctions were lifted. And America just not so much. So that's why um, Trump is feeling like, well, why should I stay with this deal, basically? And when he talks about renegotiating the deal and it was a very bad deal, what does he mean? Well, he keeps on, he's been going on for a year, for his, his whole pre term, or his, whole, his whole presidency so far, talking about this Iran deal is so bad. Right. They never, nobody ever explains in the media reports, yeah, Trump says the Iran deal is bad and he wants to renegotiate it. And they never explain to you why. Well, Trump himself never did. And he never explains to anybody he why. He was raging against it when he was campaigning. Right. He was saying, <laughs> bad deal, it's all bad, very bad, don't like it. And, I mean, uh, talk about the media. Like, uh, Surely the media would be able to investigate. Follow-up question, well, why? Or ask him or investigate a little bit and find out and bring their readers. But you look at any report on Iran deal, and all you hear is bad, it's bad. Trump wants to renegotiate it. The reason, as, as we're saying here, is uh, not just this reason, but one reason he doesn't, Trump is saying it's a bad deal is because America didn't get enough out of it. They didn't get access to enough of Iran has massive kind of natural resources and there's a lot of business to be on. There's 80 million people. It's a big, the biggest kind of country in the region and uh, America just didn't get a big enough call of the pie. And that's what he wants to re renegotiate. Um, at the same time, the US 
Trump is and every American president and the American establishment is under pressure from Israel, who does not want anybody doing any business with Iran at all, ever, never, jamais, right? That's Israel's perspective. And they put pressure on, helping put pressure on uh, on the U.S. to basically just, listen, just blow up Iran. If they could, just, they want to blow up Iran, not far from making a deal with them or even backing out of a deal. That's not, that's not what Israel, Israel wants. Iran assigned the status of pariah state and, and just to be obliterated or sanctioned out of existence, basically, because that's their... Go ahead. I have a question. It kind of predates all of it, but Macron mentioned it in his speech when he said, he reminded Congress that you initiated this. Yeah, he just said that. Why? Why would the U.S. have been initiating and supportive and eventually signed off on the JPCOA. Or right. Well, that's the other thing. Back, back that, when? Well, that's the other aspect of it is they were happy to sign this Iran deal in 2015 because mm-hmm. if you think back to mid-2015, what was happening, particularly in Syria? And this is where we get in, gets into the geopolitical aspect of it. Geo, uh, Syria in 2015 had been through basically four years of, of being overrun by hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of, of jihadis from other countries and the Syrian government and the Syrian army were seriously pressed, hard pressed, and it was looking very likely at that point in mid-2015 that the Syrian government was going to fall and they were going to, the West was going to achieve and that with their Gulf states, Saudi, Israel, Qatar, UAE allies, uh, what they had been uh, trying to achieve since they started the quote-unquote Syrian civil war uh, was to basically get rid of Assad and install a, a client regime. And they thought that was about to happen, and it was about to happen militarily. Mm. But three months less than three months, actually probably closer to two months after the Iran deal was officially signed. July Rush, 2015. Right, so July, August, September, right. end, of September end of September, 1st of October, Russia kind of dramatically and unexpectedly announced itself on the scene in Syria and over the next two years, and not until today, two and a half years, um, has totally reversed that whole situation where Assad and the Syrian government have gone from strength to strength. And the most important part of that is that that has allowed Iranian influence to spread across the Middle East. And part of the goal originally of getting rid of the Syrian government and sending the jihadis in the Western-backed terrorists in was, in, obviously it was in the U.S. interests and Western European NATO allies' interests, let's say, because there was all sorts of gas deals and they could basically divide up the country. And they also had deals of gas lines from Qatar through you know, um, from the shared oil field between Qatar and Iran was going to pass through Syria and Syria several years before this had said no, before the start of the civil war. It was one reason why they actually started. So they have an interest in it. But obviously Saudi Arabia does not like, uh, it has, has had it out for, for Syria and uh, the UAE, etc. But all as a means to getting Iran effective because there's this thing called, they keep referring to, or people refer to it as the Shia Crescent, goes from Lebanon into Syria through Iraq and down into Iran, and it's basically the, like they call it a Shia, as in Sunni Shia, Shia Crescent, mm-hmm. and it's this Iranian, effectively, or so they call it, arc of influence. Right. And this is a deadly threat, or so they see, so they, so they believe uh-huh. to the Israelis and Saudi Arabia and the established order, effectively, in the Middle East. So the the destruction of Syria, the planned destruction of Syria via the jihadis, was designed to basically contain and push back Iran. You were taken out at the middle block in an arc, let's say, and making it your own, making it, you know, that would be an enemy of, let's say, Lebanon and Hezbollah, an enemy of, of 
the Iranians and even potentially the Iraqis. So you were just destroying that kind of alliance effectively. And that was the plan of the Syrian civil war. And then it was overturned by Russia coming in and kicking out all the, killing all the jihadis. So the Iran, Iran deal was agreed in mid, mid-2015 on the basis, on the belief that this was what was going to happen. Right. Syria was going to fall. Syria was going to become a client state in the, of, of the West and mm-hmm. of Israel and of uh, Saudi Arabia. And therefore, Iran would be contained. Therefore, it was, it was fine to open Iran up to the international community, to international commerce, to international business at that point because it had effectively been geopolitically kind of neutered, let's say, uh, or that, that's what they thought was imminent. And since then, that's all been completely turned around and, they've got, and actually the opposite had happened. Iran has been emboldened and this is why, um, this is part of the reason now why uh, they're talking about, um, well, they want to do something about Iran and why, I think this is my assessment, is that Trump, when Trump talks about uh, the Iranian deal is a bad deal and we need to renegotiate it, it, yes, it's a bad deal because things have changed in the two years since you signed it very dramatically. You're not getting a good deal out of economically. That's what Trump's interests are. But Israel is gunning, obviously, for Iran because of its extent, because of the, the Russian interference or Russian involvement in the Syrian civil war, quote-unquote, and the expansion of Iranian influence, which is terrifying Israel. And right. Israel is putting pressure on Trump and on the American establishment to do something about Iran. First and foremost would be start sanctions, back out of the Iranian deal and put, impose sanctions on them. I mean, what's the first thing they do, the West does, whenever they don't like a, a quote-unquote regime? Well, they sanction, they start off with sanctions, right? So Israel and the kind of like... Uh, let's say the American imperialists or the ideologues, you know, the ones that think that America should rule the world basically forever and definitely rule the Middle East, uh, they're the ones who who are pushing for uh, something to be done about Iran, like uh, just from an ideological perspective, let's say, and to protect Israel and to maintain the established order in the Middle East. So there's a few competing factions there right. in, in that sense. Trump is... Sticking to his mandate that he campaigned on and his, his campaign uh, kind of promises and and the mandate that he was given by the people who voted for him, which was to get a better economic deal for mm-hmm. for for the U.S. And, and the Israelis and the deep state are more than happy to egg Trump on and say, yeah, yeah, definitely a terrible deal, trash it ASAP. Right, but Trump's <laughs> is he's seeing it as a bad deal for economic reasons. For different reasons. And he's trying to play. I mean, it's it's a game when you when you've got these competing factions in in, in politics like that and in big countries. If you're smart enough, if you can survive, you're having to try and play, you know, the more not more off against each other, but you're having to try and appease them to some extent and work your own plan in at the same time. And it can be a very complicated game. And, yeah. uh, it's a stupid game that you have to play at all. But so that's um, that's what's going on with the Iran deal and the other aspect of Macron's um, visit. Was to was specifically economic uh, and de- and deals with Trump's focus on kind of America first, American kind of economic isolationism in a certain sense, or certainly economic uh, protectionism. Uh, he Macron is not uh, not happy with that, and I, and then this goes into Merkel as well. Um, Trump is threatening in the next few days to possibly impose tariffs on aluminum and steel imports from 
Europe, they've, from European countries. The they've whole, already been imposed, but right. then he added exemptions for Europe, right. which already run out on May 3rd. Right. And will he renew them? So he's talking about not renewing them, and therefore uh, tariffs would be imposed on European imports to the U.S. And the problem with this is that there is a the U.S. is running a kind of a a trade surplus with with the EU, i.e. deficit from their perspective. Deficit from yeah. their perspective. The EU, uh, the U.S. buys a lot more of stuff from uh, European countries, particularly France and Germany, the UK and stuff. And Trump wants a better deal. He wants to export more products. He wants to ginny up, let's say, or, or um, he wants to... Um, well, he wants to bring jobs back to the He wants to, to encourage States. the US economy and, yeah, yeah manufacturing. And production and manufacturing jobs. Um, and tariffs. And cars. He talks about cars, etc. He wants, you know, the idea is that America is buying too many, you know, German cars, let's say. Uh, and they're not exporting enough of the cars that they're making in America to Europe, and he wants to do something that's a bit more fair, let's say, and to reduce that deficit in trade. And so, I mean, the fact that he that he publicly state, states that, and the fact that and that he has stated that, and that was his mandate, and the fact that both Macron and Merkel are coming over to try and deal with this, and he's threat, you know, to deal with uh, Trump maybe imposing tariffs, suggests that Trump is on on the level about that. You know, because they wouldn't be coming over on false pretenses. They are actually concerned. I mean, it is a thing, basically. He has imposed uh, those those tariffs, you know, uh, on, on aluminum and steel and is threatening now to to expand them. You know, I mean, just today, actually, uh, or yesterday, he was at a he was at a rally, a kind of rally in uh, Chicago, I think. In and Michigan, he, yeah. In Michigan, yeah. And he said uh, he claims the European Union was formed to rip rip off the U.S., and he said, and here's what he said. He said, uh, "Not anymore." We told them that yesterday. Actually, the exact same words. Not anymore. Those days are over. And he tells the people at the rally: "In the short term, you may have to take some problems. Long term, you're going to be so happy." Uh, when he says that, I mean, of course, Trump says things and then doesn't follow through on them. But if he follows through on, the, on this one, and, and if it, if he's he does what it sounds like he's going to do. That suggests that he is going to impose tariffs, or he's going to remove the the exemption for the EU on aluminum and steel, but also expand it to other, yeah, uh, or make other demands. I mean, it's not that so much tariffs, but establish quotas, basically, where he says that you have to buy X number of American cars or American X or yeah. American Y in return for us buying X number of that, basically. And that is, that's more or less, it's the same as a, it's a kind of the same as a trade war, basically, because hitting the European in, in the way to the, in the way that it's established, it's established right now in terms of the trade that's that's ongoing right now, if he was to establish or impose those quotas, uh, European companies would be hit economically. Yeah. So it's pretty much the same as imposing tariffs. You know, you know what is, way. this all blends into one big discussion, whether it's Russia, Iran, North Korea, Germany or France. Sanctions are just a harsher way of saying tariffs. Right. It all comes down to tariffs, yeah. protectionism versus globalization, open markets, open borders and so on. Um, the So far, it's only a small scale, but I think the Europeans know that this this will be a, this will be a big change. Basically, I don't think there have been tariffs between Europe and the U.S. for like thirty years. Mm. It, it took a long time to remove any. Right. 
Europe did very well out of especially Germany. Right. And now it's like they're coming back. Um, for now, it would be a relatively symbolic gesture, but the symbolism is not lost on Merkel. Right. Who said in her statement with Trump to the press afterwards, we'll play it now. Yes, Germany and Europe have to take their destiny, destiny into their own hands because we can no longer, as we used to uh, during the period of the Cold War, um, during the years when Germany was divided, uh, rely on America coming and helping us. America is still helping us, but step by step, we will simply have to increase our contribution to, and uh, America has been a very much engaged, very broadly engaged in parts of the world that are far away from America. And the people of America, too, have said, well, what's in it for us? So um, the president uh, is um, saying you ought to have some more burden sharing. So in a way, we're maturing. We're, we're growing out of a role where after the Second World War, people were rather happy for Germany not becoming too engaged, not uh, too active, because during the period of National Socialism, we created such incredible Justice in the world, and uh, but this post-war period is at an end. It's more than this post-war period is is um, well, that, that's essentially 70 years ago. So we, as Germans, have to learn to um, assume more responsibility. Right. So that's um, Merkel basically saying that uh, reading Trump, reading what the, uh, from her three-hour discussion. That's all she had: no dinner, no nothing, no kissing, no hugging. Just the discussion she got that from Trump, basically that uh, Trump's attitude is, "We all gotta look after yourselves now. Big Daddy America is going home. I'm too tired. I'm too old to look after you kids anymore. And you're all gonna have to look Checking after." Taking you out of the basement. <laughs> you're getting out of the basement, and uh, and this obviously coincides with the idea of a possible kind of trade war of some description, where it's we're not joined at the hip anymore, um, and and we're gonna have to, you know, we're not gonna. Trade war, trade war is kind of the extreme result, right? right? And sanctions, that's all over there at the extreme. And in between, you have competition. As right. Trump sees it, it's about competition. And right. you are a competitor to us. Right. No more, we yeah. need to stop pretending you're like Forget about my child special, in the basement. Right. The special relationship, okay, whatever. Uh, you're hurting us. So yeah. now yeah. you're going to pay. And he's doing that for the American people, essentially. Yeah. Uh, which, and of course, you never heard this. This is in his favor, basically. As bad as... As bad a state as the world is in and as messed up as it is and as corrupt as politicians and everything are, this didn't happen under Bush or Obama or anything, you know, and it was all ongoing, you know. I mean, this kind of trade surplus and American companies being hurt by uh, by, by kind of well, the I deficit have, running with the EU and stuff. I have a theory that yeah. actually it did start. In the last few years of Obama's second administration, the U.S. Um, opened court cases against Germany's major manufacturers, specifically right. Volkswagen, and they hit them, and they fined, and they right. paid. Also, French banks. I think French banks were fined something like $10 billion. But anyway, Volkswagen was fined something astronomical, supposedly because they had failed to meet certain CO2 right. regulations, blah, blah, blah. It had the stench of trade war, yeah. of a way to punish your competitor, right. hurt your competitor, and then therefore help your own industries. Right. I think what 
all that's changed really is that Trump has come in and expressed it, articulated. But that's a big that's a big change though for him to come out and say it and have leaders over and discuss it and then it become official. Like it's one thing if you accept that now again you're gonna hit back and you're gonna feather your own pockets or do something for your economy, but then let it go back to the way it was, you know? Yeah. And obviously that wasn't enough, you know, for Trump anyway to Volkswagen or hitting French banks and stuff, a one-off type thing wasn't wasn't enough. He wants a, a broad change in the way business is done between America and the EU. So, yeah. uh, and that's, that's that's pretty serious, you know. So, um, and that, Merkel that, correctly, objectively framed this in this proper historical context. Right. World War Two, national socialism. Yeah, we couldn't Nazi, really have Nazi, our own foreign Nazi, policy. We Nazi understand guilt. why you know we went under a wing, and that's coming to an end. It's been right. seventy years. It's been good, but. Um, yeah. yeah, there's no reason for it then. But this is the problem here. So Merkel's saying that, but Macron is not happy about this at all. Macron is is is, is on the on the trade deal stuff as well, and like you know, let's work something out. Let's not a straight, not start a trade war. It's no good for anybody type thing. We'll work something out. But what from the ideological perspective of the idea that Merkel just expressed there of, of America kind of isolating itself from certainly from the way it has been up until now since the Second World War. <clears throat> she's accepting of that and accepting that we're going to have to become more independent. European countries in the EU are going to have to become more independent and chart their own course. Macron's not happy with that at all because he sees dire consequences, right, for the rest of the world. I, well, he sees it's the rest of the world in his language, but basically for, for the Western establishment, the Western order, let's say. Um, because in his in his speech to congress and i'll try and find i'll just jump forward here and see what he's talking about somewhere around here maybe we will not let the rampaging work of extreme nationalism shake a world full of hopes for greater prosperity it is a critical moment if we do not act with urgency as a global community i am convinced that the international institutions, including the United Nations and NATO, will no longer be able to exercise a mandate and stabilizing influence. We would then inevitably and severely undermine the liberal order we built after World War II. Mm-hmm. You see? All the part- so he's talking about he's the talking same about liberal really, World War Two, but I don't want it to end. Right. So he's, he's otherwise it's just anarchy and chaos. Right. He he's terrified that America and he's um, and the reason he's saying that he's saying that to Congress, right? He's saying it to America, i.e., America, you have responsibility here for not to not allow this to end. I.e., if you do what you're doing, if you if you Trump follow this course that Merkel seems to have accepted, um, then oh, that's going to break loose. You know, the whole Western liberal order that has made the world so wonderful since the second world war with america at the head is 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 going to fall apart and um let's just hear i think this might be the part where he powers with the strongest strategy and ambition will then fill the void we will leave empty right so the strongest powers with ambition and whatever else will fill the void who's he mean by the strongest powers Oh, Russia and China. Right. Let's just hear a little bit more. All the powers will not hesitate one second to advocate their own model to shape the 21st century world order. Personally, 
if you ask me. I do not share the fascination for new strong powers, the abandonment of freedom, and the illusion of nationalism. So new strong powers, i.e. Russia and China, is the abandonment of freedom and the illusion of, and the illusion of nationalism. And of course, Macron won his election against, um, primarily against Marie Le Pen, who's the nationalist, uh, the Front National in, in France, you know, and he's super against any idea of nationalism. He's a, he's a diehard liberal humanitarian, yeah. I mean, you know, at least in his rhetoric, basically. Obviously, he's no problem with, you know. There's someone who just <coughs> expressed an inability to acknowledge reality. And right. for him, the rising nationalism, rising powers, it's not just Russia and China, it's obviously Iran. In, Euro- in European countries India, as well. Within Europe also. Um, and obviously what's gone, he just grossly insulted the American people as well because they're pre- precisely one of these new powers by being a national sovereign. Right, the ones who voted for Trump, yeah. He says, I, he, see, he lowers his voice. You don't, I'm not sure if everyone heard that, but he says, personally... I have no fascination with this extreme nationalism. As in, you get the sense of disgust. It's absolute disgust. And then he says, he accuses them, people with the fascination, i.e. he probably referred to people like us, as being the ones suffering from an illusion. No, no, sir. This is reality imposing itself on your illusion. Right. Let's just hear what else he says. Oh, get some applause. A standing ovation, no less. Yeah, globalism. That's America in the lead. Yeah. Therefore, distinguished members of the Congress, let us put them aside, write our own history, and birth the future we want. We have to shape our common answers to the global threats that we are facing. The only option then is to strengthen our cooperation. We can build the 21st century world order based on a new breed of multilateralism, based on a more effective, accountable, and results-oriented multilateralism, a strong multilateralism. This requires, more than ever, the United States' involvement as your role was decisive for creating and safeguarding today's free world. The United States is the one who invented this multilateralism. You are the one now who has to help to preserve and reinvent it. Yay! Um, basically, what he's saying is he's complaining about NATO falling apart and the Western world order falling apart because of what he just, because of his discussions with Trump. Uh, Merkel had the same discussion, got the same answer, and it's basically Trump saying, America first, you can all, you know, bugger off, do, do what you want. You know, basically, we're not best buddies anymore. We don't have a special relationship anymore. It's, uh, America has to be put first economically, as far as Trump's concerned. And America went, oh, okay, well, whatever, I suppose you're right, whatever, but, you know, we're going to 
we're going to do, do well, you know, Merkel assumes responsibility to some extent. And that's because Merkel isn't quite as much of a kind of an Atlanticist as, as, right. as Macron is. Macron is like a Rothschild banker basically in his history and he's only a young guy and he's just been, he's like he was birthed in some kind of vat in the basement or in the, in the, in, in the safe in a Rothschild's bank. You know, he was produced, you know, with a mixture of neoliberal, liberal tears and, and, and humanitarian <laughs> intervention with a dash of, I don't know, Croissant George Soros DNA. Or George Soros DNA. That's that's who he is basically, and so he just he's an ideologue, you know, with the Western. That's all he knows. That's what we've been brought up with. And Merkel's a lot older, longer in the tooth. Uh, born and raised in East Germany. Born and raised in East Germany. Uh, still has never given up. Is for to her credit, Merkel has resisted the the strong and relentless pressure from, from the US and from some people in Europe to ditch uh, US or sorry, Russian oil, oil and gas supplies. Uh, there's this Nord Stream 2 that's still being planned and there's still no sign despite screaming and shouting in Congress about the threat from Russian a new Russian pipeline coming into Germany that she hasn't bowed down to that and it's still going ahead so she's still keeping, she's more of a realist let's say, which allows which explains why she was more willing to accept what Trump was saying and say, okay, well, we can do it on our own then. Okay, no problem. You know, if you want to change, we, we'll go with that, you know, and we'll have to be more independent. Fine, we can do that. Macron just is like pooing his pants, you know, he doesn't know what to do, you know. No, the Western liberal order is collapsing. America, Steve, please, I love you. What are we going to do with it? I mean, what's, what, what are they going to do? If, what's NATO going to do without America, you know? Right. Trump saw, you know, if, 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 if NATO is no longer basically uh, uh, a word for US Army. the US military with a few European countries, France, UK mainly, uh, and Spain a little bit, send a few planes to go along on, on the bombing runs type thing. You know, what? Uh, how is Macron or his, lackey, his, his people going to decide to invade the next Libya and bomb the crap out of it without American uh, military might? What if, if Trump, if you know, France wants to bomb some African country and invade it um, for its own reasons. And Trump says, Trump's first response is, what's in it for me? That's, nah, dude, you, you got it all wrong. It's not about econ- It's not about economics. It's about what's in it for us. It's about, well, it's about what's in it for us and it's about the ideology. It's about, it's about the white man's burden, you know. It's what we've done forever, you know. So get with the program and Trump's like, nah, I'm, busy- me the money. I'm a businessman, you know. So yeah, that, that's that's one of the uh, ironic, but irony isn't the word. This is why Trump's likable, right? So he's a, let me put it in the worst terms, right? First, he's a greedy, arrogant, selfish, typical kind of American businessman, right? But in being so, in being looking out for number one kind of thing, he's actually what. The whole economic theory of the West is based about, on yeah. the rational actor who rationally thinks is, well, right. what's in it for me? If I do well out of it, okay, excellent. And the rational theory goes on to expound. Well, if everyone acts in a rational manner, mm-hmm. it improves the collective good for all because Trump in being so will inadvertently, mm-hmm. indirectly lift a lot of other people right. with him right. by acting out for number one. Right. And it's it's a kind of a weird quirk of, of Westernism that is founded on that theoretical basis. 
and Macron would himself be very well schooled in it, being a having gone to the best schools, banker, Rothschild, and so on. And yet, there's this kind of twist in the flaw, uh, twist in the theory there, where well, I think it's, yes, you'd be rational, but you also answer to a higher power that's unspoken or something. It's Macron. Some, the difference is Macron's liberal bent. You know, it's like the difference between conservative and liberals. You know, we talked about this in previous shows. You know, um, and I mean that in, in the in the kind of in the purest meaning of the word, or in the you know least political meaning of, of those two words of. Uh, a kind of mindset, a conservative mindset versus a, a lefty liberal mindset. And Macron's definitely lefty liberal, and they're all about that. They have this added, added element of the, of of kind of like the white man's burden of humanitarian interventions, of of doing it for the good of the poor children and stuff, because that's that's their makeup, you know, and that's his makeup, you know, and he wants to keep that on board, the ability to go around the world and remake the world. Like he said, it just in the in the speech that we just listened to, he just said it. He said about you know, making the world, making the twenty first century world order the way we the way we want it to be. And he means he said twenty first century world order. And mm-hmm. Trump's like Trump's like I'm an American. I'm a businessman in America, and I'm tasked with helping the American people. What part of going around the world? And engaging in endless conflict, un- co- conflicts, and quagmires, and getting bogged down, and spending billions of dollars in the military and wasting it. What what part of that is included in helping the American economy or helping create jobs in America? He's like, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And Macron's like, ah, but, but the babies, the black babies, you know, the poor people, the suffering people, the dictators, you know, the oppressed, and me, leading the charge. To save the world. What about that? And Trump. I think that's a crucial point right there, Joe. Uh, left to his own devices, Trump would not get involved in, in further wars. Uh, the Iranians were correct in assessing Trump um, close to when he was elected by calling him a bizarre abyssman. Uh, of course, they call I, don't, him what? I don't know if they – a bizarre, someone, someone yeah. who engages in business. Okay, right. Uh, so – so you know, this was their assessment of him. They they weren't uh, they weren't intimidated or afraid um, of him. They they it sounded as though they welcomed uh, his leadership. Um, of course, you know the, the other question, as we mentioned earlier, is uh, to what extent Israel is going to have in in leveraging its own power on Trump to you know further escalate things and, and act as a, a bad actor against Iran. On, on Iran's uh, on, on Israel's behalf, but uh, yeah, Trump uh, Trump is going for this globalist new world order, uh, you know, so-called humanitarian um, agenda. Uh, well, how, how, just, how can you expect someone? I mean, they're never going to get someone like that. So if you if you have a group of guys, you know, from the deep state or something, come and try and talk to Trump, Trump and say, give him the the vision, the ideological vision of you know America. Uh, manifest destiny, exceptional nation, you know, rulers of the world, policemen of the world, keeper of the of the chalice of freedom and democracy, uh, blah, 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 including bombing the crap out of everybody. Uh, and the first, his first response is to get his calculator out. <laughs> They're going to go like, ah, oh, dude. So this is going to cost how much? Right, okay, um, that's the cost. And the benefits... Uh, well, we're, we're working on that. We foresee that in 20 years we might, hang on, though, what are the benefits now? I want to see the benefits yeah. outweigh the cost That's it. on my 
desk this morning. It's a it's a division between visions, you know, completely pretty radically different visions of, of the world, and that's why that's why you've had all these attacks against Trump. That's why from before he was even president, he was the the, the knives right for him, you know, right? Because people understood that that's who he was and that's what he's going to do, and that their problem was that he wasn't on board with the ideology, you know. And America isn't just about making money, you know. From you know, war, yeah, war is a racket, you know, and you make money from wars, but that's not why these people wage wars. It's got it's far more pernicious in the sense that it's they're they're possessed with this ideology of we the rule world. the world, we save the world by bombing it and making it in our own, own, own image. It's pathological, and that's the people who run the deep state. Well, and, and Trump what was that like, quote from Michael Ledeen you found the other day? Yeah, from 20 years ago. Neocon, yeah, he said, you know... Every, American every, foreign policy every, every 10 years, America needs to grab some shady little country and throw it up against the wall just to show everybody who's boss. Right. Um, that's, that's a bully. That's, you know, just someone who's a bully f- for the love of being a bully. You know, who likes the dominance and the control and, the, you know, make, twisting the, turning the screws on people just for the pure pleasure of turning the screws on. And that's the kind of people they're dealing with in the so-called deep state and particularly in, in British politics as well within the quote-unquote deep state of, the, of, of British politics. That's what they're all about. And it's a throwback to, I mean, these people were infected genetically, I suppose, way back when with some kind of imperialist mindset. You know, it just got into them and that, that's the way they see the world. I don't know if that's what happened, but it's... You know, it is fundamentally a racist. That's why there's some, there's some. I can understand the leftist kind of like screaming and ranting over the past few years about uh, about racism, but they've got it totally wrong. Trump isn't a racist. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the people who the people who launched and 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 pursued the war on terror after 9/11, they're the ones who killed two million Iraqis, right, and tens of thousands of, of Afghanis. And tens of thousands of Libyans, all of them because they were brown-skinned people. Right. And that's Obama. If you want to find a racist in the past 10 years in American politics up until today, look at Trump. Look at Obama, droning the crap out of small brown babies. He's the racist. Right. Those, those lefties just have it totally wrong. And I mean, it's, it's understandable. People taking appearance over substance yeah. and unable to actually think it through and see behind the behind the scenes re- behind the headlines, let's say. Um, exactly. It's sad, you know. Um, Alan mentioned Israel, the wild card. Um, there was another big meeting this week. Israeli Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman, yeah. the pit bull, was in Washington, and he met with Defence Secretary Mattis. <laughs> that guy, he's got the nickname Mad Dog, which mm. everyone clutched their pearls when he was nominated, but right. he was actually turning out to be a sound... Fairly level-headed. Fairly level-headed guy. Mm-hmm. Um the Israelis also, Lieberman, before he went to D.C. to meet Mattis, announced that whether or not Syria gets the Russian S-300 system, you know, we have the right to defend ourselves from the Iranians in Syria. You know, work, work your head out. <laughs> Try and work that out. But the, the key point here is um, the Mattis came away from that meeting and then spoke at some committee in Congress and said that uh, I think he was either was he asked about it? I think he volunteered it he, he volunteered that um, he, he's worried that some kind of direct conflict between Israel and Iran is looking likely well the Brookings Institute put out a, a paper or an article just a few days ago saying that the war between Iran and Israel is um, okay is well it's a matter of when 
not if, but that's that's kind of nonsense. I mean, you have to look behind all this stuff as well because um, we were talking about this earlier, and there's unlikely to be any kind of a major conflict in the Middle East now, particularly over the past few years since Russia has changed the whole dynamic there, and China is heavily involved in the Middle East and many other places around the world. And Iran has been emboldened and encouraged, and Syria is still intact and going from strength to strength and stuff. Um, who would, who's going to fight? I mean, Trump under Trump, there's not going to be any war in the Middle East. Nobody's going to bomb Iran under Trump. Israel, of course, is a small uh, Dakota French politician, shitty little country, and it is very small. Um, very few people, relatively speaking, and it, but it can act on its own in a certain sense. But it's unlikely to act without some assurance from the U.S. But the Israelis are kind of a bit crazy; they're kind of pathological in a certain sense because they're paranoid, and their whole ideology and worldview is based on the idea of them being victims, and everybody's out to get them. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the politicians, certainly a lot of the people, and a lot of the politicians, actually believe that really, truly believe that. Mm-hmm. So it's path at the level of pathologies. They're not just bullshitting. Um, so they could, in theory, act, but the Israelis have a history, particularly the Israeli intelligence, of doing things by way of deception. Uh, so the what's most likely, in my estimation, if, if something is going to happen, you would have some kind of an attempt to make it look like Iran had attacked Israel. Right. Israel wouldn't necessarily respond to Iran because that would ignite a war big war in the Middle East where everybody gets destroyed. And I mean, the last people who are going to want to get involved in a direct shooting war with Iran is uh, obviously Israel, but also Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE and Qatar, because they'd be wiped out in no time, right? Yeah. Saudi Arabia, is big, so Saudi Arabia is a big enough country, but it's mostly desert, you know. You had a few cities in Saudi Arabia and it's gone, you know. Yeah. And especially you hit their oil terminals and their oil ports, it's over, you know. And Iran has a capability to do that. It's just across the water in the Persian Gulf from the UAE and from Saudi Arabia, you know. Yeah. And and Israel is within, within reach as well, easy reach as well. Um, so that's not going to happen because they'll all be destroyed. I don't think any of them are that crazy. But they'll talk it up, and that's the whole point. That's how that's how they try to get leverage over each other. Is talk up such deadly scenarios, right? Or actually create a situation. For example, imagine there's a situation where a missile, decent-sized missile, is fired. Because everybody's talked about Iran being all over Syria now, having bases. Israel attacked a so-called Iranian-based T4 base in, in Syria, according to the Israelis. Uh, the Iranians are all over Syria. With 80,000 fighters. 80,000 fighters and crap loads of weapons coming in. So maybe a missile might fly from Israel or from Syria into Israel and hit somewhere in Israel. Israel wouldn't respond, but it would immediately blame Iran. Mm-hmm. And the international community would blame Iran. And that would be leverage. Where Israel wouldn't necessarily respond, there would be a heated or ten, very tense few days. Oh, there would be another, oh my God, every crap that pants World War Three is about to break out. Uh, but it won't. And Israel would, that they would do that in order to use international public opinion of Iran just attacked the Jews. What is this? Are you Hitler? Is this Holocaust 2.0? What's going on? We are the victims. Is this? Is it never again happening again? Oh, my God. And the whole world have been programmed the past 70 years with the idea that Jews are victims and everybody's out to get them and Holocaust could happen again and Hitler could rise up. Oh, well, look, there's one right there. Everybody in the world would be behind it and that 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 power of public opinion and exerted, and we very few countries would be able to turn around and say, of course, Russia and Iran would say, we didn't do it, whatever, but then there'd be all this wrangling and stuff. But it would serve to put pressure on Iran. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they would seek to pressure Iran, because they know at this point that there's not going to be any hot 
shooting war in the Middle East because everybody dies, basically. Right. I don't mean everybody actually dies, but nobody wins. There's no winner. Yeah. There's only who suffered slightly less than the others. So nobody wins. So that's that's the uh, and as far as I can see, their only their their only uh, option really in terms of the Israeli option, the pathological Israeli option of like Iran must be stopped at all costs. The only way that they really are able to stop Iran at this point would be to do something like that to leverage public opinion. And you notice the reason I say that is because that seems to be the way things have gone right. over the past five, six, maybe ten years or whatever in, in geopolitics. And you look specifically at Russia, at the way the West has tried to deal with Russia. There haven't been no, there has been no World War Three. There's been no shooting war. What no, they've they have dealt with is, Ukraine by having MH17. Right, that kind of thing. Uh, it's been this ridiculously intense propaganda war, <clears throat> where Russia is accused of doing something, and there's staged events, and Russia is accused of doing the worst possible thing. There are people sitting in rooms thinking, what's the worst possible thing Russia could possibly do? Give me a list of ten things, please. And then we'll pick one of them. We'll try and blow make, a plane out of the sky. Yeah, blow a plane out, poison some ex-Russian spy, that kind of thing. Make those things happen and then use public, international public opinion to, to attack Russia or whatever. And, and that could be applied to any other country. Where you propaganda-wise attack them viciously and you, you actually achieve, uh, you have the potential for achieving uh, quite a lot through those, through those means. Um, at least, but really, what it does is it really only puts check, off. It checks your opponent. It checks your opponent, but it really only puts off the inevitable because that kind of tactic is the tactic of someone who's losing, mm-hmm. who's on the on the back foot, is on the way out basically, and it's a last desperate attempt because it is fairly desperate. To, I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a clear sign to use Obama's allegation against Putin. It's a clear sign of weakness. Right. It's, it's an example of weakness to do something like that because it means that you cannot actually. Uh, attack your enemy and destroy or defeat your enemy directly, and you have to use. So you have to use um, some kind of, you know, what do they call dirty tricks, basically some some dirty asymmetric trick, warfare. asymmetric propaganda, information war to try yeah. and attack them and get everybody against them, make everybody hate them. And that's well, why are you doing that? Why would you even do that? Uh, you're you're afraid of something. There's something about that person you're attacking that really troubles you, right? It seems maybe you're... Do you feel like you're going to lose to that person? Are you going to lose to them? Is that why you're doing this? And do you think that this will actually achieve a kind of turnaround in that situation? Probably not. It just delays the inevitable. Because by your own action, you're actually stating that there's some inevitable change coming and you're desperately trying to resist it and stop it from happening. So effectively, you're fighting against reality. Yeah. There's a new reality... That has emerged as a result of technological progress and the development of the world, basically. And you just can't uh, bring yourself up to speed, basically. You can't let go of the old ways where you were top of the heap and, and come down to a new kind of multipolar kind of world, uh, conception of the world or world order. And uh, so what do you do? Well, you just fight against it. But that's not made by anybody. It's not Russia doing that. It's not China doing that. That's just a natural function of the, of, of, of the development of the world. And you're going to fight against that because... You're not really. What are you fighting against? You're fighting against. Uh, you're fighting against nature, reality. I mean, you think you're going to win? Uh, and and that's why, in this fight against what is effectively a fight, these Western powers, Israel, the U.S., not so much the U.S. but deep state in the U.S., the Brits, fight in their fight against reality. They're actually having to make shit up. They're actually yeah. having to, and they're increasingly appearing like they are making shit up. Yeah. And that's what that's a hallmark of someone who is fighting against reality when they fly into delusions, basically, and they look like they're actually delusional. They start saying stuff like Russia 
you know, uh, stole my, Russia ate my dinner, you know, or if something goes wrong, you know. Or I am the equal of Putin. That kind of stuff, yeah. I mean, you know, when you start blaming, like as the, as the Brits in particular have done, and the Americans, like, you know, Russia stole my election. You know, Russia made sure, Russia Russia stopped uh, Hillary Clinton winning the election. Just with what? With two tweets. That's that's your argument, and you're actually saying that? You don't, I mean, you're so f- far removed from reality that you're actually going to make that argument and think that people will believe it? Some people might, because they're as crazy as you, but you know what? The vast majority of people are going to, I'm just going to respond and go, you're fucking nuts. Yeah. There's something wrong with you. And then, and when you get that response from people, you realize that your that your nonsense isn't flying with them. What do you do? Well, a crazy per- well, a normal person would say, "Okay, better stop that." A crazy person double da- doubles down on it and just go- says, "You don't believe that Russia stole the election?" Well, they also uh, stole stole other elections as well. And they what else do they do? Come on, does nobody have any examples? Uh, they they rigged the World Cup. They're rigging the World Cup. Well, they haven't had they're it yet, the but they will. They're, they're, well, they're up to everything, basically. You know what I mean? Anything that you can think of that they could possibly do, they're doing. And you have no evidence for it. You make those statements. People go, you're still nuts. In fact, you're more nuts than you were before. So these, that's a hallmark of people fighting against reality, basically. Um, and the people that you're attacking, the Russians, for example, that they're attacking, just sit back and go... Wow. Well, you don't have to do anything. You no. Just go, wow. You just let it. You just feel sorry for them. You just go, I'm sorry. I feel sorry for you, really, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, hacking everything. Well, just to add to that, it, it, it's not enough uh, that countries like Iran and Russia uh, don't succeed. Uh, in the mind of Israel, uh, a country like Iran has to be dominated. Uh, you know, you have the uh, the Yunnan plan. The, the, Israel has had its own deep state version of plans to dominate the Middle East. Uh, it, 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 it can't act as a rational actor in the way that Trump would like to. Uh, it doesn't want to uh, have have normalization of, of trade and, and political connection. Uh, its plan, its pathological aim. Uh, at its very heart, and this is really why we're seeing uh, all of this incredible rhetoric and, and the antagonism of, of Iran for many years now, is is domination. It's uh, it's destabilization in the way that they've supported uh, the jihadis and proxy armies in Syria uh, and Iraq. Um, and it's really, you know, you, you read about this in, in books about the criminal mind, uh, where where there's this this uh, this uh, criminal element of of wanting to have power over uh, other nations. So um, you know, existential threat. Iran would not be, uh, you know, we would not be hearing the rhetoric out of Iran uh, uh, towards Israel if not for the many years of of destabilizing the assassination of nuclear scientists and and all kinds of. The support of MEK and and all of these other things. Uh, if 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 Israel had not been this kind of uh, uh, agitator for for tearing down Iran as uh, a nation, as a sovereign uh, uh, nation that that's got uh, integrity and and its own economy and its own culture, uh, so there there is that element, right? Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> it's not going to end well for Israel, one way or another. I think if they persist in this, and there's no there's no reason to think that they won't, because I think they're they've been pathologized basically. Um, I think you know the creation of the state of Israel was really uh, based on a uh, was just a very bad idea. <clears throat> it was based on a on a kind of a a paranoia or a, a pathology in a certain sense, you know, um, and it's only. Uh, entrenched itself and become worse over the past, um, you know, 70 years. So, uh, and it's a very small country. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, it's such a small country to be rabble-rousing and engaging in those kind of dirty tricks and the way they're treating the Palestinians, obviously. Did you notice the, there were floods there? It was weird, just a few days after uh, the whole Damascus, the Duma thing and the Damascus thing, about a week or so, it was a few days ago, yeah. there were torrential rains across the whole region, basically, uh, in Israel and in 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 Damascus, I think, and in other parts of Syria and Lebanon. Um, but it, there were actually nine or ten, I think, uh, Israeli kind of hiker students, military recruits, actually, were in pre-military school or something. They were uh, near the Red Sea in some canyon, and there were just flash floods because of the torrential downpours, uh, and mm-hmm. eight, eight, nine or ten of them were killed. But uh, it also, that, that torrential downpour also uh, washed away part of the border fence <laughs> uh, between... <laughs> Israel and the West Bank, right? Had knocked it down, uh, and that was and that was just after probably it was like a day or two after, or even this, the same day of uh, uh, when there was a renewed three more Palestinians were shot uh, when they were in, in Gaza when they were approached the border fence, whatever. Basically, the Israelis are just murder, murdering Palestinians. Over forty dead now. Yeah, so, that's pretty symbolic. Part of that impenetrable concrete barrier washed away. Right. Well, it kind of address, it gets to the point. I mean, I know it's, we're going out in a limb here in a certain sense, but I just said that these people are fighting against reality. And, you know, what is it that they're fighting against when there's a new world order, a natural world order reasserting or asserting itself as a result of just technological development and the development of the global economies and stuff, new countries coming online and stuff? Well, if you fight against that and claim that that cannot happen, you're fighting against nature effectively. And here we have an example of nature uh, you know, washing away part of the Israeli border fence after um, after the Israeli early soldiers have been killing a bunch of Palestinians for approaching it. Anyway, it's interesting from a symbolic point of view. One last major international meeting that took place last week that got zero attention in the Western media was the meeting of the leader of China and India. Right. Well, they were actually part of the, the SCO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Meetings, but um, uh, I'm not, nothing, nothing particular. No particular development came out of it. Um, India remains a bit um, quite ambivalent about China's New Silk Road project, um, the Belt and Road Initiative. So it, it still won't sign up to it. But there's still, they might have that same old antagonism. That specifically concerns Pakistan and, and how it's to be used because some of China's mm-hmm. development there in Pakistan runs through Kashmir, which is disputed territory with India. But at the same time, there are plenty of other deals, mega deals going on, a major new connection um, from India via Iran all the way to Russia. I mm-hmm. mean, that's like epic. That's just a sort of infrastructure concept on a scale that's, you know, it's like linking Canada and Brazil. I mean, it's, this is the kind of epic developments that are taking place mm-hmm. quietly. Now, they have their own PR. They would like everyone to listen. 
they, they, they do propagandize a bit. I mean, they want the world to know about these things, but right. it's drowned out by all of these relatively small, yeah. minor things that are World War III. trying to let go of the illusions of the past, yes. you know? Screaming and shouting, creating, starting fires in different places. Um, on the, I just wanted to follow up a little bit on, on the Macron thing. So... Macron, in that speech, we didn't play it, but later on in that speech, he basically says uh, explicitly, France will not uh, back out of the Iran deal. He said, he said that explicitly, and that's in response to, I mean, that's after talking with Trump, and Trump saying, I, may, I might back out of it, and France is saying, well, I won't. But that was signed by uh, several nations, Russia, China, France, the US, Germany. That deal was signed by them, so you have potentially have the U.S. backing out on May 12th, dropping it and effectively imposing U.S. sanctions on it. And when, up until now, when the U.S. has imposed sanctions, its allies <coughs> have gone along with it. But Macron is basically saying here that if the U.S. backs out of the Iran deal and imposes sanctions on Iran, France will not follow suit. And probably Germany and other European nations won't follow suit either, i.e. they'll continue to do business with Iran. And they've even... Um, there's a, they've even set that up in a certain sense because um, uh, the sanctions that were previously imposed in Iran, uh, European companies actually worked it in such a way that uh, um, that they that they could continue to do deals with Iran. They set up basically kind of denomination or, or the trade that they did with Iran was being done in euro in euros basically, so that. Yeah. We could avoid the U.S. dollar, so it's already in place for European companies, and particularly French companies, to continue to be able to deal with Iran without being sanctioned. Because that's the threat, obviously, is if if, you, if the U.S. backs out of the Iran deal and European countries don't, and they continue to do business, then the U.S. Trump would be faced with having to say, "Well, you're in violation of the sanctions that I, America, imposed on Iran," and France would be like, "Well, I didn't, I didn't agree with that. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm America." You have to agree, and France is like, no, I'm just going to keep doing business with them in dollars, you know. So that's more of a, I would in just, euros. In euros, so that would just simply increase the kind of parting of the ways. Effectively, yeah. that happens, and I think that is going to happen in one form or another. And um, there is going to be a, a parting of the ways between Europe and the US, and it's a necessary, effectively, a necessary parting of the ways for probably for the the future the future that's beckoning basically you know what I mean um, even in the context of like Eurasian integration and that kind of stuff you know because if there is if Trump can't and he can't he's only one president right I mean the US is still controlled by the deep state effectively and when Trump is gone they will reassert themselves so if the US is in the grip of, of the deep state and always will be well then um, ultimately, they'll have to they'll have to go alone, basically, with their vision of the world, which is that we're on top and everybody else must be subservient, and the rest of the world will just say, "Well, we'll leave you to your delusion, and we'll just carry on." And there'll be a lot of uh, slips, I'd say, in between now and then that that actually manifesting itself fully, but because there's certainly uh, Atlanticists in, in in Europe as well, and deep state elements within within Europe that are pretty much the same as those in the US particularly in the UK. But uh, I think that's where it's going. The, the whole idea, the concept that has been talked about and we've talked about and other people have talked about, geopolitical analysts have talked about in terms of Eurasian integration, that's a reality. That's nature. That, that is going to happen at some point. And there's nothing America can do about it except uh, stall it 
and hopefully they won't go to the point of if I can't have it, no one can, and I'm going to burn it all down or something. But certainly they'll start fires here and there. This is the deep state uh, to try and stop that from happening or, or to push it off, to delay the inevitable, essentially, and just create more misery and, and suffering for people, you know. But uh, that's where it's going, you know. So um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was today the Sunday Times doubled down, like I mentioned earlier, when, you, when you're fighting with reality and people don't believe you, uh, you double down on your BS thinking that I just didn't lie to them hard enough last time. I'll have to lie to them more egregiously this time and then they'll get it. No, that's just going to make it worse. So Sunday Times had an article, front page today, saying that Russia exposed. Russia tried to uh, swing election for Corbyn. This is the Labour Party uh, uh, leader. And, and so in the, in the elections last year, the UK general elections last year, the 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 Murdoch Rupert Murdoch owned uh, Sunday Times, uh, the paper of snobby paper of repute supposedly for the UK yeah. has just for the UK has just uh, I mean they just came out with this and they just got trashed on Twitter when they put they put it on on Twitter and they just got so trashed by it because this is just on the back of all of this other unbelievable stuff that are this claim that that Russia did against the UK from the Skripal thing to. To 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 do man, you know, uh, the chemical supposed chemical attacks and stuff, and people just aren't believing it. And a lot of people aren't believing it. So the Sunday Times, in their wisdom, decide that let's just do more of the same. Basically, let's throw out another hilariously implausible claim about what Russia Russia hacked our election. Like it's, it's even just copying America, you know. Yeah. America's the the, the Clintonistas and stuff have been screaming about, you know. Putin robbed us, robbed the Democrats, robbed Hillary of the presidential uh, win. And, you know, a year and a half later, the Sunday Times is saying, oh, yeah, yeah Russia did that uh, last year. That. Russia did that last year here as well. Like, as if, like, an afterthought type thing, you know? Yeah. But you don't have to say that. It's the thing that people know that that's probably what you're going to say. So you don't need to say it, really. You know, we know you would say that. We know you'd say Russia did pretty much everything that you don't like. What, whatever I don't like, Russia did. Is, is there an answer? And that's how simplistic it is. There's a lot of people who are going like, that was actually written on Twitter, I think, by one person. Right. That's the kind of British establishment's kind of go-to go to answer for everything. Whatever we don't like, Russia did it. Yeah. And Well, some guy, a couple of people replied to the Sunday Times tweet about tomorrow's headline. Expose. Yeah. And they found, or maybe they had it themselves, a copy. They took a photo of a 1991 expose about Neil Kinnock, Neil Kinnock who was then Labour Party Labour Party leader. Expose Kremlin connection to Kinnock. Right. <laughs> and then somebody <laughs> else went one above him and found an article from 1921. Right. Sunday Times exposed uh, Kremlin or Russian connection, Red's connection to. Um, Ramsey McDonald, it was Labour Party in 1921. Right. <laughs> yeah, people are getting wise to it, but it's, I mean, and that's not necessarily their credit because, I mean, it's so in your face at this point that you hope that <clears throat> everybody would have got, would have understood what's really going on. I mean, the, the, the propaganda, the lies, and the, the Russia ate my homework kind of thing is, I, is so crass at this point that you'd think everybody with half a brain cell working would go. You know, that doesn't sound plausible to me. It sounds like you're blaming Russia for everything. You sound mm-hmm. a bit crazy. Maybe you should stop doing that. And then they go, no, Russia's making you think that. That's what actually, well, they've more or less said that. 
I mean, they've gone to that, that extreme of actually saying that <clears throat> the people who don't agree with the British government, that actually Russia is more or less making them think that by, uh, by influencing them on Twitter and social media. And then those people in the UK who don't agree with the British government, with the British establishment effectively, um, that they've been, they've been influenced by Russia. I mean, there's there's no there's no response to that. That's pure path pathology, you know, where where the person making those accusations, i.e., the British establishment, can never be wrong. They can never be challenged to say, "Listen, I think you're going a bit far with this. I think you're making accusations." I mean, give them some credit, give them the benefit of the doubt, and say that they're just a bit misinformed or they're a bit hystericized, and you try and appeal to them and say, "Listen, I think you're going a bit far with this Russian accusation thing. Russia didn't do everything. Russia can't be responsible for everything that goes wrong." And then their response is. That's exactly what Putin would say. Uh, well, then you just have to walk away. You're talking to a crazy person. You're yeah. talking to crazy, crazy people, and you have to walk away from them. <clears throat> well, uh, another possible response, uh, and I think we're seeing the beginnings of it uh, here and there, are just anger, white-hot anger. Uh, people know that they're getting their intelligence insulted. They know that they're getting the big lies shoved down their throats. And uh, and they know that uh, the the British media and the U.S. media is just doubling down on all these ridiculous, absurd lies one after the other. At some point, uh, people, I you know, I, I don't know what form this will take. Um, in addition to going on uh, Twitter and and various other places and speaking out against it, but uh, you know, we're we're going to see a lot more anger. On, on the part of smart people everywhere who are just not uh, not buying it, and and who feel a level of frustration and and uh, and resistance to to these to these lies that um, I don't know it, it'll it'll be interesting to see what form this will take. Well, in in in, in the norm, I mean, in the environment the West has created. It has a mechanism for dealing with this, which is parliamentary democracy. People would vote in rational actors. However, when you're dealing with irrationality, they start rigging things for a while, which we've been in that period for a couple of decades and probably very egregiously. It's kind of strange because you can call them crazy people, which they are, obviously. They've lost the plot. They've lost their minds. They've lost their grip on reality. But they're also they're still very cunning. They still it's not like a normal crazy person because you, when you pause it in that way, you think that they're they're gibbering idiots and they would just they wouldn't be able to run the country in any in any meaningful way at all. Everything would fall apart they would, and they would start exposing themselves and everybody would see it. But it's a level of insanity that's you know it's kind of below the surface or something. Or at least there's people behind the scenes who aren't that insane. You know there are people who. The ideologues who really believe, they're the really stupid ones who really actually, the ones who, who write the headlines and write the articles about anti, anti-Russian stuff, um, they actually believe it. But then there are others who are know that it's basically asymmetric warfare, that they're doing this on purpose. They're not crazy. They're the cunning uh, kind of backroom boys who are you know, uh, manipulating events from behind the scenes type of thing and they're the ones that are the real problem like you can't just say that they're all crazy and therefore if everybody's crazy if these people are just lost the plot and th- that eventually it'll all come tumbling down right because that can't stand a crazy house can't stand right um but i think it's worse it's, it's worse than that we're seeing the public face of it 
which is the crazy aspect where these people actually have lost the plot. They really believe their own bullshit. Uh, but there's other behind the scene who are rubbing their hands together uh, in glee because it's working. Although I think they're probably a bit disturbed as well because they're seeing that it's not working effectively. You know, because obviously mm-hmm. they, when they put this propaganda out there, this anti-Russia propaganda asymmetric information war, they hope that it will succeed. And what they mean by succeeding, or what I mean by succeeding, is that it will convince the great unwashed public that Russia really is evil and you should have nothing to do with them. But and they've had some success in that respect, but not so much for a lot of people. Um, they'll they'll do increasingly. Totalitarian things, right. clearly. Um, censorship, right? Taking over social media, right? <coughs> shadow banning, all kinds of subterfuge. Which ultimately mean, means that it's not really. Ultimately, it won't really be about Russia. It'll be about. It's about controlling the population. Mm. That that's the real target mm. because that's the real enemy in a certain sense. Because if you want to convince someone, you're desperately want to convince something of a certain narrative. Convince the whole population of a country of a certain narrative. And you spin stories and tell lies and make stuff up, stage events to convince them uh, that, say, Russia or a, a, another foreign country is evil. That's on the geopolitical level, you want to achieve something by attacking that country. But you realize that the real cause of your problem is the free minds, let's say, of the population of your country. That's, that's your real target, ultimately, no? Because if you don't have them on side, then no amount of attacks against your enemy will, will ever work. You know, you first have to get the population uh, thinking the right, quote-unquote, right way. Uh, and then you can use that political capital, let's say, to Im- implement policies. But if you don't have the people, if the people start uh, disbelieving, so ultimately your anger or your frustration will be turned against them. And like you said, you would start basically just saying, well, we need to impose some kind of totalitarian controls for it's kind of like humanitarian you know bomb people to save them mm-hmm. this would be like censor mm-hmm. impose censorship against the British or the American population to save them to protect them from the enemy but what you really want is what happens as an end result of that you basically have your goal is to have a whole population of slaves enthralled to you so is that that was your end that was really your goal in the first place right because <laughs> that's what you've ended up with yeah mm. Well, speaking of censorship, just a, maybe a, a quick comment on the Skripal saga and how that's playing out. Um, the news has been pretty quiet lately about it, but um, Craig Murray and um, Rob Slane and a few others who have been covering it pretty well, you know, for since, since it started, put out some articles this weekend, noting the lack of me, of media coverage lately, and um, they point out that it looks like there was probably a uh, this is a British thing. What's it called? Like an Order D or something? A D, a D um, notice. D notice, right? And it's basically like a, an official censorship notice, right? Like you can't right. report on this type of information. And you also can't say um, that so, you also can't say that you've been given a D notice. Right. So I mean, talk about totalitarian censorship. Um, of course, the you know the UK has never had any kind of real um, freedom of speech or freedom of the press, at least not as a you know as it's. Um, at least in name in the United States. But 
Um, so there's speculation about what this D notice is about, and it's it, it seems like there's some hint that it was about the identity of um, Skripal's MI6 handler, and so that's why in the in the you know in the media ever since it happened you haven't seen this guy named at all. Um, but his name was was revealed early on. It just wasn't picked up and reported on, you know, or repeated after the fact. It was this guy named, I think, like Pablo Miller or something. Right. Apparently, this guy this guy is tied in with Christopher Steele. Um, they're they're connected uh, in some ways, friends or something like that. But it is interesting that the that we haven't really heard any updates. You know, we haven't heard anything about Yulia or Sergey, and that that's what I find pretty strange is that we haven't had an update about the actual guy involved in this, the, the main victim, Sergei Skripal, since the, the one update that they had to give about Yulia Skripal, because the Russians, you know, her, uh, Victoria Skripal, her cousin, had basically beaten the, the UK media and government to the punch by giving an update. So that the next day they had to say, oh, yeah, Yulia's doing well, and then Sergei's out of his coma or whatever. But they, But we haven't heard anything about that. It's so it's very strange. No updates about you know any kind of suspects. Well, no, they did have that one update, right, about the um, the alleged suspect, and they gave that uh, identikit picture that was all um, you know censored out about what this Russian agent looks like, and you know they're thinking this guy might be him. Or, I don't know. But, um, Looks like Putin. But no real news. <laughs> well, I, the only picture I saw, it was completely like. Um, blurred out like you it was just a guy's shoulders but maybe i don't know maybe they had a, a different picture but uh yeah so basically no news on that front and it looks like there's no news because um you know they're not allowed to get any news so there you have it well this is, this is the same pattern we've seen with mh17 i think we're going to see it again with the russian collusion narrative you know the the mainstream media and the government puts out this uh, version of events they hammer on it they react to it. Uh, the government, uh, you know, goes into certain policy uh, because of it. Um, and and as people begin to examine it and take it apart and question it, uh, it just seems to fade away in, into the awareness of everybody. Um, and and that's the hope, uh, especially when it when it looks like you know the the facts do not come together in the way that the original propaganda uh, presented it to be. So, you right. know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, it if it goes in the direction of those other big Russia did it stories as well. Yeah. And final note on uh, on more or less sums up what we're talking about. There's an article in the uh, provided by Red Fox in the, in the chat room article from a couple of days ago in the Telegraph UK Telegraph that uh, saying that Britain is ranked in the list of uh, countries uh, that of you know levels of press freedom. A uh, list of countries enjoying the highest levels of press freedom. The UK is ranked number 40. And apparently the British press is shocked that they're full of shit <laughs> and that it's official. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we've been, been trying to tell you for a long time, guys, that uh, that you're full of shit. Uh, but, you know, okay, maybe you'll understand it now if there's an official uh, press freedom ranking for you. All right, folks, we're going to leave there for this week. Um, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Um, thanks for our chatters. We'll be back next week with another show. Um, so until then, I we hope you have a good and pleasant evening. Thanks, Joe, for your geopolitical explanations. And see you all next week. Bye, everyone.
Take care. Bye, everyone.